0: morning's reading is from Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> um, they went across the lake to the region of Gennesaret. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came to, from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For <clears throat> he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out. And for Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus said to him, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. So the man went home and began to to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see all of you. hope you're having a good weekend. Um, it was my, um, my mum's birthday yesterday. She's, um, she turned 58, which um, is apparently younger than Tim, Tim announced at the, um, the 9 o'clock service. Uh, 58 feels young. The older I get, 58 feels pretty good. I feel good that my mum is 58. That makes sense to me. Um, well, yeah, we had haggis for mum's birthday yesterday, vegetarian haggis. Does anyone else like haggis? No. Some people do. Who? Harry likes... Of course, Harry likes haggis. Fits the name, doesn't it? But um, I was sat at the end of my table... At the end, not my table, the table. At the end of the table, and Charlotte was on my right, and my twin brother Sam was sat next to her, and he started to eat his haggis, and just as he began, his eyes lit up. And he said, Charlotte, do you know how you catch a haggis? And Charlotte suddenly flung her eyes on him. and said, no. How do you catch a haggis? And he said, well... Very difficult unless you know how. So, what you've got to do is you've got to go to a mountain in Scotland where all of the haggis live. And haggis, well, they're a bit funny because the legs on the left side of their body have you heard this story? The legs on this is a proper Scottish story. Here we go. We're going cultural today, guys. The legs on the left side of haggis can do is run round and round and round the mountain. So, if you wait there with a big net, You can catch the haggis and it will just run straight into your net." And Charlotte said, But I thought the haggis was vegetarian. And Sam said, Of course it is. It eats its vegetables. (laughs) And you could see her like just just play the story round in her head. And then she looked at him and she said, You're just like him. She pointed at me and said, And that means you're lying. (laughs) Cheers, kids. Thanks for the, that's a vote of confidence for my ability to be a mature caregiver, isn't it? We're, um, we're going to pray as we get going this morning. Jesus, we thank you that as we've already sung this morning, that you're with us, that you're the God of revival. You're the God that brings us hope and joy and life today. We ask that you would speak your truth into us. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning, um, we are carrying on our series, thinking about the miracles that Jesus performed. A couple weeks ago, Tim got us going by talking about um, why and how miracles happen. Kev talked last week about the blind man being given sight. This morning, we're talking about deliverance, about demons. Uh, We're going to think a little bit about... Um, Jesus uh, turning water into wine and multiplying foods. Jesus performs lots and lots of different types and kinds of miracles and all the way up to Lent. We're going to go through a different type of miracle each week. And we're doing that because the miracles that Jesus performed show us something about who Jesus is. We learn about who Jesus is from the things that he says and the things that he does. And as people who were called to live and love like Jesus lived and loved, uh, we need to pay attention when Jesus does something. The Bible tells us that when we see the Son, when we see Jesus, He is the exact representation of God the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and you pay attention to the things that He does and the way that He does it because it lets us know what God Himself is like in all of His fullness. And as people who want to be disciples, who want to be apprentices, who want to learn and live, to love like Jesus learned and lived, like Jesus lived and loved, then it's important for us to pay attention to it and to Him this morning. And our miracle today plays out on lots of different levels. It's, um, it's political in part because with Jesus, it's almost always political, it's personal, it feeds into the life of a wider community. And as with lots of the best stories and best moments in the Bible, it saves its killer punch for right at the end. Because we hear this story and we think it's all about one man being set free from 2,000 demons, but actually we end with something that's much, much scarier for you and me than one man and 2,000 demons, but something that we see the effects of everywhere in all of society. Jesus gets onto a boat, and the story is plain sailing so far. I mean, Sue Jameson gave me a laugh this morning, and no one else at the 9 o'clock did. Alice smiled, but I think that was like a pity thing going on. Cheers, John. Thanks for the shake. <laughs> This is like pearls before 2,000 swines. (laughs) That was a fair one, wasn't it? Side of the lake, Lake Galilee, to the Gentile side. Now, already, our alarm bells should be ringing, right? Because the Jewish people were settled in very particular parts of the country and the region. And if you were Jewish, you tended to do your best to stay within your tribe and within your land. These are my people. These are God's people. These are people that I can trust and I can rely upon, and so I stay in this particular region. But Jesus gets on a boat, and he goes to the other side of the lake, and he gets out, and a man comes towards him. And we hear that the man has come from the tombs. The tombs would have been high up on the hillside, and it's not like um, Anfield Cemetery or a nice kind of well-kept graveyard, but the tombs are kind of carved into the side of mountains they're more like caves and it's where the poor people in the nearby towns would have taken their dead bodies for the flesh to rot off and they would then have come back and gathered up the bones they would have done something different with the bones and the tombs are literally just where the flesh rots so if you live in amongst all of those tombs with the flesh rotting it would have smelt disgusting wouldn't it It would have been a horrible and a horrifying place to have to live. And within the Jewish faith, tombs were considered to be ritually unclean. And it's obvious why, isn't it? And if you spent any time around the tombs as a Jewish person, then you would have to go through a ritual that would mean you could become clean and re-enter your community. Otherwise, you'd have to spend time apart. So as we hear that the man is coming from the tombs, we know that this man is unclean. And as he gets towards Jesus, Jesus recognizes something about him. He says that he has an impure spirit in him. Jesus has crossed the lake from the clean to the unclean side. He's got out of the boats. Someone has come at him from the tombs where the dead bodies are rotting, towards him, and this person has an unclean or an impure spirit in them. This story is starting to stack itself layer upon layer upon layer, isn't it? Uh, Jesus gets into a conversation with the demons in the man, and then he casts the demons out into pigs. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a farm or anything like that. You know, like a, we went to a kind of kids' petting farm um, over the summer, and there was 20 pigs in the room, Man, 20 pigs is a lot of pigs. If we set 20 pigs free in this room, you would really know about it, wouldn't you? Julia would be so mad. <laughs> I don't think I would get my next five Sundays. I think she would run me out of town straight away. But can you imagine not 20 pigs, but 2,000 pigs? Goodness me, that's a lot of pigs, isn't it? It's, it's almost comical, isn't it? Almost Almost comical. Jesus has gone from the clean side to the unclean side. He's got out of the boats. The man from the tombs has come down with the unclean spirit, and now Jesus is going to send 2,000 demons from this man into pigs. There's an element of comedy and farce here, isn't it? The point that the story is trying to tell us, the point that this moment in Jesus' life is trying to tell us is that this person, this moment, was so unclean. It was so defiled. In fact, Jesus, when he got to that side of the water, I don't think he should even have got out of the boat, because some people, some situations, they're just too bad, aren't they? They should be dismissed. They should be ignored. Some people should spend their lives in the tombs, exiled away from their family and their friends and their community, and Jesus says, no, that's not how it's meant to be. That's not what life is meant to be like. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to all of society at that time that no one is beyond the love and the kindness and the redemptive grace of God. That there's no situation that he can't turn around. That there's no part of our lives that's too broken that he can't redeem it. That he can't deliver us from. Jesus sees every single part of us. I was listening to a song this week and there's a line in it. It says, the one who knows me best loves me most. You think, "Rats, the one who knows me best ought to love me least. Because they see every single part of me. They see the darkest bits of me. The things that I don't like about me. They see all of the thoughts in the back of my head that went on this morning when my alarm went off. They see every single part of me. And yet, he loves me the most. Out of everyone. And he loves you the most out of everyone Jesus steps into our lives sees the darkness sees the things that lurk in the back of our hearts and he loves us the most he shouldn't even get out of the boat but Jesus is moved with compassion and what does he do he talks to the man and this is where it starts to get good because he talks to the man and who talks back It's not the man, it's demons. Now, demons, when I say the word, that's probably going to divide the room, I would imagine, quite quickly. Some of you will be like, yep, there are demons. Some of them have names. Have you tried talking to them? And others will immediately think, this is a load of rubbish, that demons don't exist, that they can't be around. But Jesus gets into a conversation with this man, and the demons talk Back to him. Um, Not long after I said I was leaving, someone said to me, Ah, good. Does that mean you're going to tell us what you really think about things? As though this was my moment to go on some kind of giant truth telling mission. And there is a moment for that. It's my final sermon. (laughs) It's not. We won't be doing that. No, Doris. (laughs) Very wise. Yeah. But here's the thing I believe in demons. Now, Not in the way that some people do. You go into some church traditions and everything's a demon, right? And it's kind of everywhere, you know? And it's a bit of a way for us not to take responsibility for the junk in our lives and the decisions that we make and the things that we get wrong. And we say, nah, it wasn't me. It was the demons. Or nah, it wasn't me. It was Satan himself. And I think that's statistically unlikely. I think sometimes we just get things wrong and we just make mistakes. And as free people, we can take responsibility for that. But let me tell you a little bit about why I believe in demons. I believe in demons because you see them in the Bible and I can't think of a better explanation for them. In the Old Testament, David, King David takes a census. This is a Bible pop quiz for you. Could anyone tell me who tells David to take a census? Sorry? Not God. Satan, even Sue Jameson didn't know that at the nine o'clock, so I don't know why I thought anyone else would know it. And Satan is named, which is unusual in the Old Testament, but there's an idea that evil exists. Now, often, if I just said, do we believe that evil exists in the world, I would imagine that we would all agree with that, because we can think of situations and places where we'll go, that's evil, that's not right, that's not good. But, when, as we see in Scripture, evil gets given a name and a face, and someone can ask it its name, and someone can send it somewhere, that becomes more problematic for a lot of us, doesn't it? But in the Old Testament, we hear reference to Satan. And then Jesus delivers this man. And some people want to say that uh, this kind of moment in Scripture, it's Jesus engaging with a man with very bad mental health. And I absolutely want to agree. I think this man has appalling mental health. I think if you're living your whole life exiled from your community by the tombs, then your mental health will suffer. We hear that he self-harms, a sign maybe that his mental health isn't in a great spot. But Jesus engages in a conversation with this man. Again, you could say it's a personality disorder at this point, but he does something. He sends the demons from the man into pigs, and the pigs run into the water. Now, that's the bit where I think it becomes interesting and different for us, aside from mental health, because it makes the pigs do something, they run into the water and they drown themselves. And at this point, you could say, yep, the whole story is a metaphor. It's a kind of uh, allegory or an analogy of something. But If you start to do that here, where do you stop and where do you draw the line as to what's metaphor and what's analogy and what's real life event and Jesus doing something? And before you know it, the gospels become a collection of nice stories that teach us something rather than a declaration about Jesus being the king of all creation. And the gospels start to lose their power and they start to lose their meaning. I don't believe in demons in particular because I've ever met any demons, I haven't, but because of the way that we engage with scripture and the way that it helps us make sense of who Jesus is and there will be bits that I'll think, gosh, that seems a bit unlikely and that's kind of the point because Jesus is always doing things that seem unlikely. Paul talks about life being a battle between powers and principalities and the flesh crying out, There's a common understanding all the way through that there is more to this world than you and I can see. There is a reality that you can't see with your naked eye that there's something else going on, but that the way that it gets dealt with is always the same. Jesus talks to the man. He says, my name is Legion. Jesus gets into a conversation and the demons say, Jesus, don't torture us which is weird isn't it because Jesus has never tortured anyone he's good isn't he he's good all of the time he does kind and loving and generous things so for someone to say Jesus don't torture me feels mad and it's because when evil meets with the presence of goodness and hope and life the darkness feels like it's being tortured because it just can't stand it anymore It just can't stand to be in the presence of something that good and that holy and that pure, and so it has to flee. Within each of us, within you and me, there is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that lived in Jesus, the same light, the same joy, the same hope. I don't think it's possible for Christians to get demonized in the way that we see in this story. And I think if you were, you would really know about it because you'd be half naked, living by some tombs and with some broken chains around your ankles and your wrists. I don't think it would be subtle for us, but we know that whatever happens and whenever it happens, that the goodness and the light and the life of Jesus overcomes and it triumphs. Jesus sends the demons into the pigs and they run into the water. This story plays out on different levels, because when we hear that the man is called legion, we're finding out something else. At that moment in history, that town that um, that Marg was reading about um, had had a Roman legion placed in it for 36 years, for 36 long years. The 10th legion, the legion of the bears, had been sat in that town, and that meant That every day for 36 years, people had woken up and they'd seen the Roman standard. And they'd seen the soldiers marching around their streets and their training exercises. And they'd been reminded every day for 36 years that they were oppressed. That Rome had its boots on their neck. And Jesus turns up and he meets a man who's got so many demons in, they call themselves legion. How many soldiers are in a legion? About 2000, 2068 if we're being precise about it, which the Romans were, and those demons get sent into the pigs. There's a political point being made here. Jesus is saying that one day you will be delivered from all of these oppressive forces that surround your life. Not just the Roman Empire, but everything that wants to oppress you, you will be set free from. The man, uh, the, the pig's herds, the owners of the pigs, they see everything that's happened and they run into town and they tell the villagers. And they come running out and they see the man, the free man, sitting fully dressed and in his right mind. In other words, he is completely fine. He's suddenly normal again. The demons have gone, and life can return to normal for this man. It should be a time of celebration, right? This man who's had to spend all of his life by the tombs can now rejoin the community and be welcomed home. But what do they do? They see what's happened, and they tell Jesus that he's got to go. They see the goodness and the life and the love of Jesus and the difference that he's made in this man's life, and they try and send Jesus away. This is the worst bit of the story. This is the very worst bit. As um, Someone called St. John of Christotum, whose name I'll have butchered, um, he was around in 347 AD, and uh, and he was speaking about this um, passage of Scripture, and he says that it's not the evil that comes bound in chains and screaming at you as it runs down the hill that you should be scared of, It's the evil that comes quietly at the end of the story and sends Jesus away. Because this bit's worse, isn't it? These people have seen and know how good Jesus is. They've seen the difference he's made in this man's life and they send him away. You see, because there's a darkness and an evil that spreads and creeps so slowly and quietly and easily and it's in the things that we know and do nothing about. You see, we know that when we buy cheap clothes from cheap shops, that they've been made by people living in slavery, right? We know that in the Western world if we want to know it, and yet we continue to make those decisions, don't we? We know that when we stand up in front of people and we tell them that they can't be with their loved ones as they die in hospital, but then allegedly get given a birthday cake and say we were ambushed, we know that those things... There was a time when I thought it was funny the first time I heard it, and I thought about it, and I thought, if that's true, it's dark, isn't it? And it's deceptive, and you might want to call it evil because of the moments that it's taken away from people. We live in a world where we don't just point the finger, but we recognize in ourselves that we know we do the wrong things. When someone makes a joke that we think is racist, and we don't challenge them on it, and we let it go. When someone says, I'm not being homophobic, I just don't think it's natural, and we don't question them on it. When we let people get away with things that are discriminatory and hurtful, that spread hatred and divide us, and we don't challenge it, we become complicit with the evil around us, don't we? I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer or someone said that for evil to flourish, all you need is for a few good men to remain silent. It's like when a lake freezes over, and it doesn't freeze over to six-foot ice all in one go, does it? But just little by little by little by little, the ice gets thicker. And it does that because nobody tried to break it because nobody tried to put their fist through it or put a rock through it or challenge it or provoke it or say that that's not acceptable. That's not the way that I want to live and that's not the way that we're called to live as a society. You see, there's an easy thing to do when we see darkness and evil around us. It's to scatter it and it's to shatter it. And it's to say that this isn't the way that Jesus calls us to live. We should do something different. The Gospel of John begins by saying that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. And Jesus tells you and he tells me that you are the light of the world. There's a poet called Ian Adams and he's rewritten that bit of the scriptures and he says you are the lights of the world. Step out from the tree line. Shine. You are the light of the world. You are Jesus's plan for scattering darkness in this world will you do something about it will you scatter the darkness of hunger will you shatter the darkness of prejudice of loneliness of isolation Jesus spirit at work in you and me is the hope of the world let's pray together Spirit, would you come and fill us this morning? Would you come and bring us your light and your life? we know that at the sound of your voice, the darkness flees, that you would remove the dark parts of us, that you would transform it by your grace. Jesus, we bring before you this morning the parts of our world that are dark, that are absent of your truth and your light. Our Holy Spirit, Jesus, would you redeem them? Would you correct them? Or would you bring your justice to bear on it? In your name we pray, Jesus. I'm